Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. We are brought to you today by Athletic Greens AG1. This magical green powder of 75 pristinely sourced vitamins and minerals supports your gut health, immune function, and it helps with energy, recovery, focus, and even anti-aging. These are a few of the many reasons that AG1 has become a staple part of my routine. First thing, every morning into a cold glass of water. AG1 saves me time and money by taking all the guesswork out of what vitamin stack I should be using to help optimize my health. So you can reclaim your health with convenient daily nutrition. It's easy. One scoop in a cup of water every day. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free year's supply of immune-supporting vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash roadman. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash roadman to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link and all the details for this offer are in today's show notes. Hello, all you beautiful cyclists. It's Tour de France kickoff weekend. Oh my God, we're very excited. We haven't stopped talking about the Tour de France here in the Roadman Cycling Podcast Studio since probably over the last 50 weeks, basically since the last one finished. And I know Anthony covered the stages, the contenders, all of the ins and outs of the mountain stages, sprint stages in Thursday's episode. So go back and listen to that because he has some really great insights. But today I'm going to do something a little bit different. It's a quick podcast about the tour. I'm going to give you some interesting facts about the race and you can go off this weekend and you can pretend that these are your own facts. You learned them and researched them yourself and you can seem like a Tour de France pro on your group spin. Now, the Tour de France we know has been held since 1903 and of course it's been a bit of a bumpy ride because we've had cheaters, we've had dopers, we've had doping allegations, we've had thrills, we've had spills. Unfortunately, we've had some deaths of some riders. There's always drama and the excitement of this race just still persists even since the early 1900s and did you know that we have over 3 billion viewers every year yeah I said billion with a B so let's quickly run through the very basics for any of the newbies to the Tour de France I'm going to cover some funny and some salacious gossip and going on that have happened throughout the years since the first tour with a little bit of a focus on when the tour was basically the wild wild west of sport and there was some crazy shenanigans back then but to focus on this year there are 22 teams and 176 riders so there's eight riders per team there's 21 stages and it's run over 23 days. So that means there's two rest days. And we know if you listen to the podcast that the guys won't be just sitting down, popping on Netflix for the day off. They'll still be going out and doing a ride that would probably make my eyeballs bleed even on their rest day, just to keep their legs nice and fresh, to keep their bodies feeling kind of peppy for all the stages that are yet to come. Total kilometers this year is 3,000 405.6. That is a lot of kilometers. But back in 1926, 
there was a Tour de France and the distance covered over 17 days. And remember, we have 21 days now. Distance covered was 5,745 kilometers. That is crazy. And it's even more crazy considering the equipment of the 1920s. Now, the 3,405.6 kilometers this year, it sounds crazy. And you're thinking that little 0.6 at the end, that's just like a speck. It looks like a speck in the distance at the start of the three weeks. But those 600 meters, they are some of the most important 600 meters for some of these riders in the peloton because they will take place up the Champs-Élysées and this is basically the Sprinters World Cup. That happens on stage number 21 of the Tour de France. So that is a very important 600 metres. The total vertical metres to race this year is 56,467 metres. And that would be like going up Mount Everest six and a half times, which is completely insane. Now we have to talk about the most wins this year because this year is very important for a rider called Mark Cavendish. At the moment, the most winningest cyclist on the tour is Eddie Merckx and he holds the record for the most stage wins with 34 and with all these stage wins it's obviously no surprise that Merckx is a five-time winner of the Tour de France but sharing the most stage wins at 34 is British legend Mark Cavendish. This is Mark's final year before he retires. So all eyes are going to be on him to see if he can win a stage this year and get to that magic number 35. Like him or not, Cav has been an amazing disciple of the sport and he's given a lot to it and I would love to see him do it. I think he deserves it. So what happens when you win? How much money? do these guys get? The rider who outlasts the rest at the Tour de France in 2023, who manages all the climbs, who doesn't get sick, who doesn't get injured, who avoids the crashes, you know, he has a little bit of luck, a little bit of rub of the green, and he has the lowest overall time. Well, that fella is going to take home half a million. The person in second will get 200,000. And for third place, that rider will get 100,000. And there's prize money for the green jersey and the polka dot jersey podium winners. They'll get 25 grand each. And the young rider in the white jersey well, the winner of that will get 20 grand. And finally, the team that accumulates the most points over the three weeks, they'll get the team prize and they will pick up 50k. Now, while we're talking about jerseys, I always wondered why the King of the Mountain jersey is white with red polka dots. I always thought it was a bit kind of garish and almost like a bit weird. It's just like just so odd. <laughs> But I find out that it's because of the brand Chocolat Poulain who sponsored the jersey first and their chocolate wrappers were decorated white with red polka dots. So that's where this kind of funky design came from. Another thing to note is that the race leader's jersey is yellow because of the pages of the original sponsoring paper La Auto Velo and its pages were yellow. But the jersey didn't actually come into existence until about 13 or 14 years after the first race was run. That's when the yellow jersey was first introduced. Before that, it was just a simple green armband that signified the overall leader. Now, something completely different and an absolutely revolting fact, if you want to pass it over to your cycling buddies this weekend, is that over the 3,500 kilometres and after cycling the entirety of the Tour de France, the peloton will have generated enough sweat to flush a toilet 39 times. So there you go. <laughs> Now, the thing that really fascinates me about the tour is just 
obviously the sheer epicness of the whole thing. I don't know if epicness is where it should be. It's a physical, mental, I'm sure very emotional feat for the athletes. I think they're warriors and things have evolved so much since the first tour in 1903. And I want to focus for a couple of minutes on nutrition. The first tour was won by Maurice Garin. He was a chimney sweep by trade, so there was no such thing as professional athletes. And apparently he ate and drank his way around the tour in pubs and inns. He drank from puddles, streams, fountains. This was just to get himself through the race. And by all accounts, the competitors for the first 20 years at least of the tours They were all half pissed. They were jarred the whole way going around. They drank alcohol during the race. They drank beer. They drank champagne, wine. And they did drink it for hydration and probably to make the ride a little bit more fun. And also, I would say, to dull some of the pain that they were in. And during the 17th stage of the 1935 tour, nearly the entire peloton decided to take a break to go boozing with the locals in a village that they rode through. One guy, he was a bit cunning, Julian Manu, he decided, nah, not for me. He passed on the beer and he actually wound up winning the stage. And he was not a popular person for the next couple of years because everyone felt that in solidarity, they all should have stopped and gone on the piss together. But the boozing didn't stop there. And actually, it continued well into the 1960s. The 1960s, that's not that long ago, the French finally passed a law forbidding the use of stimulants in the Tour de France. Mm, We all know how effective that was. In 1904, just to give you an example, winner Henri Cornet, he kept a food diary and his food rations on for one day were 11 litres of hot chocolate, four litres of tea, champagne. And I love the way he just left out the amount of champagne that he consumed. He just put in champagne and one and a half kilograms of rice pudding in a day. So there you go. Fueling of champions. But nutrition slowly became a focus and in the early 1920s, the first musettes were handed out to cyclists. This was around the time of World War One and the musette bags for cyclists kind of roughly resembled those used by military troops in World War One. And these bags, they allowed the cyclists to grab all the snacks that they needed without having to get off the bike. And of course, this tradition continues today, even though obviously the contents of the bag have changed a lot. Now we have to talk about all of the stories of riders getting chemical assistance and these stories began to make the news in the 1920s in particular when these infamous brothers Francis and Henri Pelsner, now Henri won the 1923 tour and I've covered this pair in a previous podcast. They were wild wild out. They boasted to journalists and anyone that would listen that they had, and I quote, cocaine to go in our eyes, chloroform for our gums. And do you want to see the pills? We keep going on dynamite. In the evenings, we dance around our rooms instead of sleeping. Oh my God, can you imagine the two boys having their own little rave in their room completely out of their trees, high as kites every evening? And these lads were French cycling heroes. They were cycling royalty. They were so successful. And of course, this was really all taken with a grain of salt back in the day. We d- <laughs> There was no real rules and regulations around doping and taking all of the and abusing all of these substances. The second tour ever run in 1904 was actually one of the most scandalous when it came to obvious cheating because riders 
had to be punished for skullduggery. They were taking shortcuts. They were getting cars to pick them up and bring them to the next town. They were getting on trains and getting to the ne- the end of the stage. And this year's favourite was Maurice Garin. Remember, he won the first one. He was beaten up by his rival supporters. And the rivals were also putting nails and broken glass and obstacles. They were throwing them onto the course to hamper rival cyclists. And that practice continued for several more tours before there was a crackdown of this kind of behaviour. So the tour organisers were just kind of, they knew that this was all going on for the first couple of years, but they they were kind of like, oh, boys will be boys. It's just a bit of fun and, you know, the rough and tumble of competition. But eventually they cracked down on it and became more strict about supporters and the behaviour of supporters. And of course, there's loads of stories of other methods of assistance, especially in the mountain stages. In 1938, a rider made a miraculous recovery after only an hour earlier being passed out from exhaustion and the heat. But it was revealed that he was actually hanging on to the back of a car. And look, this practice isn't gone either now. I mean, not to that extreme, but we do see a lot of very, very sticky bottles being handed out. And very recently we saw images, I think it was of the under 23 worlds, where there was about 15 riders holding on to a team car in order to get them back up to the peloton. In 1955, a newspaper reported a long list of riders who had been fined for receiving an unsolicited push from spectators. Now, I've been at the tour and I've stood on Alpe d'Huez and okay, no one is pushing the lead riders. We are definitely not giving the GC contenders or stage race contenders a push. But those poor sprinters down the back that are struggling, where like the broom wagon is right behind them, or those domestics who have done their job for the day and are absolutely beat. Yeah, there was people giving them a little push up the hill. And in fact, I heard loads of riders shouting and asking for a push. In 1950, there was an international incident Can you imagine? The French government had to actually apologise to the Italian government when drunk French spectators blocked the road in the Pyrenees and they threatened the favourite Italian Gino Bertelli. He had to quit the race. He had to withdraw because the intimidation was so bad. And even more extreme than that was the case of the person who punched five-time tour winner Eddie Merckx in the kidneys during the 1975 race. Now, he finished the stage, but his attempt to win a sixth tour obviously was completely damaged. And of course, punching a rider, it's not something we see anymore. We don't see people putting nails or broken glass on the road to scupper anyone's chances. But I do know, like Gino Bertelli back in 1950, some riders do get a lot of abuse from fans. And I recently read an article where Chris Froome talked about the abuse he got from fans on Irish Corner on Alpe d'Huez one year. And he deemed that abuse disgusting. Not only has booze, cocaine, methamphetamines and any other cocktail of performance enhancing drugs been used through the tourist kind of murky history, riders have always been ingenious in their own ways to get the upper hand. And one story stood out to be Jean Rubich in 1947. He was known as a really excellent climber. He was very, very light and couldn't be beaten when they were ascending the mountains. But everyone would catch back up with him on the descents because, again, he was so teeny tiny. So at the top of the mountain, 
his team would pass him lead mercury disguised in water bottles in, in order for him to go faster on the downhills. Very ingenious. And of course, there's bike tech and equipment tech. The tour has evolved from a simple test of going out there. It's pure endurance and speed. And, you know, now it's like a crazy arms race of technology and innovation. The teams are all fighting to find that edge that will take them over the mountains, that will get them the high speed time trials, will get them over the cobbled road, anything to get this edge on the other teams. And the focus on aerodynamic, focus on gears, it's obsessive. And the bikes of today are almost completely unrecognisable from those used in 1903. When the first tour was run, bikes were built of wood and steel and they actually weighed over 19 kilograms. And we now know that the minimum bike weight is 6.8 kilograms. In fact, new developments in cycling technology was really frowned upon in the early years of the tour. The organisers didn't want any cool, techie nonsense. They just wanted to keep the race simple, pure, old school and just really about the body and the mentality of the rider. They didn't even allow the use of mechanical gear changing systems until the 1930s. Before this, a rider would have to stop, take off their wheel, flip it around. There'd be a different gear cog on the other side and off they go. And you'll see a lot of pictures from the time where the riders rode with spare tires looped around their torsos because the riders had to be completely self-sufficient. They couldn't get any outside help with mechanicals and they'd be really heavily penalised if they did. One of the stories that I read was when the forks of Eugene Christophe's bike snapped during the race in 1913. He had to run into a local blacksmith and re-weld them himself. So he couldn't get any help from the blacksmith. The blacksmith was just standing over his shoulder telling him what to do. But it was later discovered that Christophe had gotten the help of a young local fella to pump the bellows for the forge and because of this he was actually penalised for receiving outside assistance which is crazy because nowadays all of the riders they're all supported by doctors mechanics physiologists psychologists coaches masseuse operation logistic management and there's so many team cars and buses and these cars and vehicles in effect become a mobile business and mobile garage for the duration of the race so it's insane to think that these riders had to get through the three weeks of the tour completely self-supported. It's just amazing. There's so, so many fascinating stories about the tour. I could go on and on and on. The Tour de France has been pushing man and machine to their limits and entertaining us and enthralling us for years. And hopefully this year is going to be no different. So settle in everybody for the greatest three weeks of the year. Mwah.